0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Yeah, it is Monday and you have to wait several more days for more football. But hey, we got two good martinis for you. Good, good and bad slash crazy as we start off the work week. And Jim, let's start with good number one. This is no surprise. But if the Republicans don't screw this up, it could turn out to be really, really good for 2024, and that's that uh, liberal Arizona Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego is officially entering the race for U.S. Senate in Arizona. He has been very critical about Kirsten Cinema for the past couple of years, especially over the filibuster and the fact that... Uh, You know, she helped Joe Manchin water some things down in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act and uh, some of the other things that could have been worse. Ultimately, they both voted for him, and that's not good. But uh, unacceptable to many Arizona Democrats. I believe she got censured by her, her own state party. So, of course, late last year, after the midterm, cinema says, Hey, I'm not a Democrat anymore. I'm an independent. So she's going to run for re-election as an independent. So the Democrats have to find a nominee. Uh, Gallego's certainly been positioning for this. And uh, uh, he will likely be the nominee, but we'll see who else gets in. So, Jim, with a hardcore Democrat in the race... And a less hardcore Democrat, really, in the race, you could call her a moderate, but her voting record and her position issues really aren't that moderate. She's just not crazy like a lot of the other Democrats in the Senate, should be a good position in a competitive state like Arizona for the Republicans to pick up a Senate seat. I don't know that I have a ton of confidence that they won't find a way to blow this, but uh, as of right now, you would think that splitting uh, the, the vote left of center would be a great thing for the Republicans.
1: Yeah, look, we expected Ruben Gallego to announce for this seat. As you mentioned, he'd been a longtime critic of cinema. I think what makes this a good martini, in addition to taking a two-way race that, by the way, in Arizona had not gone well for Republicans over the last two cycles or so. And if it's a three-way race, the chances of the Republican candidate ending up with the largest share of the vote look a little bit better. But I think the other thing that's kind of intriguing about this is how cinema responds. There are people saying that uh, you know cinema has not officially announced she's running for re-election. I'd be shocked if she chose not to run for re-election. You don't formally leave your party and register as an independent unless you're kind of reposition yourself. And I, I between now and election day, twenty twenty-four, I would be surprised if Kirsten Cinema is there for Democrats when she they need her, because why should she? She's not a Democrat anymore. She's also, uh, why, you know, does she want to look as similar to Gallego as possible? Or does she want to carve out this very distinct and different identity as a centrist, as an independent, as not someone who will go along with the the rest of what the Democrats are doing? And my guess is that she, you know, between now and election day, you'll see a whole bunch of votes where uh, she disappoints them. She was just in Davos last week with Joe Manchin talking about how they refused to get rid of the filibuster and how they felt like it was extremely unwise for Democrats to do this and how uh, they felt like they had saved the Democrats. You know, uh, she had the interesting remarks when she talked about people said democracy was at stake and then lo and behold, Democrats did okay in the midterms. So we nearly threw away the, the, uh, the filibuster over short-term political gain and not really thinking about the long-term effect on the institution. So I think she's who she always is. And I think that... if you're you're on the right, you now have a roughly one-third chance. I mean, look, a lot of things will change between now and Election Day, but roughly one-third chance of a Republican winning, one-third of an independent who frustrates the Democrats a great deal winning, and a one-third chance of a Democrat winning. And that's actually pretty good, uh, considering the trend line in Arizona lately.
0: See, that's interesting, because, I think. well, first of all, it's going to depend a lot, I think, on who the Republicans nominate. Uh, You know, somebody who can appeal a little bit more to the middle. We obviously want uh, the person to be as Buckley would say, the most conservative person who can win. But where does cinema get her votes from if she, you know, is competitive? And this does kind of break down in, into thirds, because uh, I feel like the left is hardcore against her. Uh, so does she actually get some more right-leaning um, independence to go her way, or does a Republican with a fairly broad appeal, not only on the right but but inching into the middle? kind of squeeze her a little bit. So, I mean, we want her to be pretty competitive. So it's not just the Republican up against Gallego. Uh, so, it's, so it's interesting to watch uh, how she's going to position herself and, and what the Republicans do here.
1: Yeah, I guess the scenario I find hardest to see is her taking a hard tack to the left between now and Election Day, trying to, you know, persuade the Gallego supporters to you know decide to back her. I think once you've jumped off the Kirsten Cinema bandwagon, you're probably not getting back on. Yeah. Um and so yeah, she'll have to carve it out of the middle and that'll probably be, you know, more headaches for Democrats between now and election day.
0: Yeah, it'd be fun to watch how she votes on some of the stuff if she has to inch right. And I think I think, from based on what you said, and, and just knowing what's going on in Arizona, that's probably uh, the way it's going to go. It'd be interesting to watch how many people uh, in Arizona appreciate her independence. You know, John Gabriel from Ricochet, who you know hosts our podcast and uh, writes columns out there, says that's what Arizonans love most. That's why John McCain kept getting reelected, even though he drove Republicans nuts. It's because people love an independent streak. So, is that worth more votes than the political class thinks? Well. We're about to find out if, in fact, she runs again, which I assume she will. All right. Well, uh, the Democrats might be pulling their hair out over what's going to happen with that Senate seat in 2024. But if you've got thinning hair, you don't need to pull it out or watch it fade away. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness. So get ahead of thinning hair with Nutrafol's whole body approach to hair growth. No drugs, no compromises. Nutrafol
1: is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Nutrafol's hair growth nutraceuticals go beyond genetics to target all the root causes of thinning hair, including stress, hormones, nutrition, metabolism, aging, and lifestyle through whole body health. And remember, it's recommended by more than 3,000 top doctors.
0: You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support the Three Martini Lunch by going to Nutrafol.com/men and entering the promo code Martini to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com/men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com/men. Promo code Martini. All right, Jim, on to our second uh, good martini now, and we'll find out how good this is, uh, depending on the replacement here. But Ron Klain, Ron Klain is uh, going to be leaving as White House Chief of Staff, or really, Prime Minister, as we have been uh, fond of saying. He seems to be uh, the guy, and the Chief of Staff often is, steering the President in various directions, but... uh Given what we know of Joe Biden, uh, the steerer has a little more power than normal uh, over the past couple of years. Now, coming in to replace uh, Ron Klain, who I assume is uh, leaving to spend more time with his Twitter account, is Jeff Zients, (laughs) who is, uh, of course, uh, Biden's former COVID czar. And uh, a lot of folks on uh, Twitter are uh, more than happy to point out was the guy who promised everybody Severe illness and death for everyone who didn't get uh, didn't get the COVID shot, I guess, uh, last winter. So, Jim, uh, what do you make of uh, Klain hitting the bricks? I mean, after two years of chief of staff, it is a pretty demanding job uh, and, the, and the replacement coming in.
1: Now, we'll see if the new guy really creates a different tone, different style, different approach to issues. But I, I, I am happy to see Ron Klain leaving. And I think... One of the things that's going to be fascinating is in the coming week or two, you're probably going to see a lot of hosannas for uh, Ron Klain, people touting how successful the first two years the Biden administration have been. But have they really been? And, you know, there are all kinds of ways you can measure this. You can measure the president's approval rating. I'm looking over at 538. It's 42.1. That's not particularly good. Uh, one of the things that's really been striking is that ever since the with you know Afghanistan withdrawal, Uh, Biden dropped into the 40s and he's pretty much stayed there. He really hit the the doldrums in, you know, around July of last year. A little bit of an improvement, but really it's still a country where, you know, significantly more people disapprove of the job President Biden is doing than than they approve. A number of Democrats who want to see, uh, Democrats and just Americans as a whole who want to see another four years of Biden continues to poll pretty badly. Uh, you can argue that the you know midterms went better for the Democrats than expected. And I, I would agree with that assessment. But I think that had a lot more to do with who the Republicans nominated than the popularity of the president or the effectiveness of this White House or the policies they've enacted. First and foremost among that is the enormous rate of inflation we've had for the, you know, really the past year and a half. Yes, things were better in the last month or two. They actually, you know, uh, down one tenth of one percent, but still six percent or so over year over year. Look, that's been the biggest story in the country. Uh, probably you, know, you can argue about immigration, you can argue about insecure borders and you know various other aspects, obviously the end of the COVID pandemic. But by and large, this has been one in which Americans have just gone to the gas pumps, gone to the grocery store and just gasped at what's been going on and think, oh my goodness, you know this you know there's a reason the country's not in a good mood. There's a reason economic pessimism is high. There's a reason your 401k probably did not do very well last year, maybe not the year before that either um add it all up this is not you know, in terms of democrats getting what they want this has been a fairly successful uh, first two years for biden but that comes when you have the senate and house you know if you, you know, yes it was tough yes they had to make some compromises with mansion and cinema to build back better you know but all in all this is not a phenomenally successful democratic presidency at least not by the standards of the country as a whole and a lot of the usual you know measurements yes unemployment's low That's what you'd expect when they were coming out of the uh, intense recession of COVID-19. We've had all supply chain issues. Uh, You know, you add it all up. This is a significantly, you know, this has been a challenging two years. And Ron Klain can go out and say, well, I did my job. Usually your first two years of your presidency are your most successful. Those are the ones where you have the most political capital. Everyone's got the most energy. Then you start getting replaced by the B team. As I noted, the Ob the Biden a team is really the Obama e-team <laughs> that every two years an administration usually has some turnover so I look claim good riddance I don't really think this has been a great two years I think everybody's gonna be telling him what a terrific job he did but if you really do see him as the guy who is the you know the the man behind the throne the prime minister etc then maybe having science in there will be a different presidency and hopefully one that let's just tries to muscle it through on pure Democratic votes and uh, hopes for the best and insists everything is going to get better tomorrow just you wait look there's been a two cent decline in in gas prices (laughs) arguments like that
0: yeah he hasn't tweeted about gas prices a lot lately because they've been going up um my local gas station 305 which is still too high on new year's day now 343 so the guy who's like hey we're down this much from the peak well the peak is not yeah. the point that's where you started i filled up at 217 the last time i filled up before biden got sworn in so uh that's a significant increase in prices so uh ron Klein interesting character kevin spacey played him in that movie remember that hbo movie about the florida recount in 2000 so he goes back a long way and i'm sure he'll uh get a nice cushy job at some point here and given our luck, he probably will still uh, be gaslighting us about gas prices and grocery prices and everything else on his Twitter account. But uh, we'll see about Jeff's. I don't. I don't expect much different. But uh, maybe he'll be less obnoxious publicly, and at least that's a a slight win.
1: We should, we should point out, Greg, that movie was made back when people would say, "Oh yeah, I want Kevin Spacey to play me in the movie." <laughs> I should point out, though, that like Kevin Spacey, he kind of gets typecast as. Um, You know, serial killers and maniacs, criminal masterminds, uh, the evil president on uh, House House of Cards. You know, he's always playing some sort of evil, you know, manipulative figure behind the throne. So, in a way, getting cast as Ron Klain might have been more typecasting.
0: All right, on to our bad and crazy uh, martini now, Jim. And you wrote about this at length in the uh, morning jolt today. Uh, And that's the situation uh, with the U.S. trying to figure out whether or not to send tanks to Ukraine. Uh, On Friday, as you write, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley, always a favorite here at the Three Martini Lunch, told reporters that the war in Ukraine likely to continue past 2023. From a military standpoint, he still maintains that for this year it would be very difficult to militarily eject the Russian forces from every inch of Ukraine. And Uh, And Russian occupied Ukraine. The Ukrainians are asking for tanks. Uh, The Germans apparently are willing to send them, but only if we send them too. So I guess we're at a stalemate here in terms of whether or not that will happen. As you point out, usually the longer the debate goes on, uh, Vladimir Zelensky eventually. Gets what he wants. To me, it's better to send weapons than than just a huge truckload of cash and hope that it actually gets spent on valuable stuff, which I think has been a major uh, Republican concern over the past few months. So uh, you know, ultimately, we don't want Russia to do what it wants to do in Ukraine. So we'll see what happens here. So why why more hemming and hawing now than with previous uh, requests?
1: Well, part of this is you know the process of working in an alliance and back during the debates about uh, leading up to the Iraq war and stuff, the coalition of the willing and things like that, people pointed out that like, when you have a coalition, when you have an alliance, you can only move as fast as the slowest member. You could, if you run on consensus, then you need everybody to buy in and whoever, you know, holds out and drags their feet can hold up the action of the entire alliance. Well, that's kind of what we're seeing here with Germany. Surprise, Um, you know, just our luck, Greg, that now the Germans don't want to fight wars. Where was where was this attitude when we could have used it anyway? Because um, we saw the fight very early in the conflict between you know when Russia invaded Ukraine. But you know should should the NATO allies that have Mig twenty nine send them to Ukraine and all for some you know it sounded like the deal was in place. Then all of a sudden the Biden administration is like, well, we don't know if they're. It would take a while to train them, and you know, there's drag, foot dragging. Apparently one of one of the our NATO allies has sent a few. Uh, Patriot missile batteries, Bradley fighting, but we keep seeing the same recurring argument um, in which the Biden, you know, you, Zelensky and the Ukrainian government will say, can you send us this system? And the Biden administration, and other NATO allies, are like, well, oh, we don't know. Ah, it'll take you a long time to learn how to use it. Ah, you know. And in the meantime, the war keeps going on. Ukrainians keep dying. And then like three you know, four or five months later, when things get worse, the Biden administration, says, oh, OK, I guess you really do need this. OK, let's send it over. In the meantime, we've, you know, they've, the Ukrainians have lost a lot of uh, lives. So now we're on to tanks. And, the you know, by the way, the entire philosophy of, well, it would take a while to train them. Uh, just this past week, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley said, that, look, the war is probably going to continue beyond 2023. He does not see uh, a resolution to this in the coming year. So if they're still going to be fighting in January 2024... Then why not send them this stuff? Because it's not like it's going to get there by the time the war ends. It's going to, you know, if it'll take them six months to train them, well, then fine. Six months from now, you can have trained Ukrainian forces to operate the system, or you can not have them. Which would you rather have? And it really feels... So there was this big NATO get-together this past uh, weekend. And towards everybody kind of figured this was going to end with everybody working out okay we're going to send the ukrainians tanks here's who's going to send what and all of a sudden it was kind of a surprise. germany said yeah we don't want to send them any of our tanks called the leopard 2. um they have 312 that are they say they're operational but 99 are under repair oh greg does that seem like really high to you <laughs> is this like the studebaker of tanks or something the ford pinto the sort of thing where it's always in the it's like a jaguar it's always in the shop it's leopards jaguars now i get it okay anyway <laughs> They were talking about maybe they could send 19 of them to Ukraine. Ah, they have big, big, generous donors there, um, but they did they did not agree to it in the at the summit. One of the things they were proposing was, well, we'll send our uh, our leopards if you guys send the M1A1. Now, the M1A1 is the you know main U.S. battle tank. It's state of the art. It's as good as it gets. And the Pentagon is like, well, this is really tough to use. It's really a huge gas guzzler, uh, and we don't necessarily. And oh, by the way, all a whole bunch of U.S tanks are here in the US so getting them to Ukraine would not be easy. So uh in addition to Milley, Austin, it sounds like the entire Pentagon is you know reluctant for this idea. Well because the US doesn't want to send Abrams tanks, then the Germans don't want to send their uh Leopards. Oh by the way, a couple other NATO allies have Leopard tanks, but Germany has the uh has to sign off on any export of them. So other countries like Poland that are much more eager to send the leopards basically need a permission slip from Germany, or they, I guess I could violate their export agreement, but that creates a whole new headache. It sounds like Germany's finally coming around to giving other countries the permission slip to say, yes, you can send these to Ukraine. Oh, thanks a lot, guys, that's that's big of you. Um, but they're still not willing to send theirs. By the way, I, I, look, my attitude is, as I said, right now, all the incentives are to send this stuff to the Ukrainians. There's no point in waiting if you're just gonna do it six months from now Reach the same conclusion. The M1A1 Abrams tanks is basically designed to destroy Russian tanks and designed to withstand the hits from Russian tanks. I went into this morning, to Jolt, I went into. I found a report from the GAO about accounts of uh, Abrams tanks taking on the Russian T72 back during the Persian Gulf War, and apparently the T72 just couldn't penetrate the armor. So basically, it would go out and you know the, uh, the Iraqis would shoot at the American tanks. The American basically they bounce off or they wouldn't do any damage. The M1 Abrams would just keep on going and fighting and the Americans would win. Imagine what that would do for the Ukrainians who are seeing all these Russian tanks coming over the hill. So here we are. And, you know, the Germans are saying, look, we'll do it if you guys do it. The Pentagon's saying we don't want to do it. Poland's like, we'd love to do it, but we need a permission slip. And in the middle of all this, Biden is asked about this last Friday. And you know, he says, Ukraine is going to get all the help they need. Uh Greg, is it too much to ask that the president be told what his own administration's policy is? (laughs) You know what? McLean's on the way out. Now I get it. How do you know he
0: wasn't? (laughs) That's the problem. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so much like Jay-Z, and it it comes to the leopard tanks, uh, 99 problems, um, apparently, with the ones that don't work right now. Uh, uh, (laughs) uh, But you mentioned that these were specifically built... To fight Russian tanks, yet in this NBC story that you cite, uh Millie and Austin say that these are not the right vehicles for the fight in Ukraine right now. You said they were state of the art. Are they worried the Russians are going to get their hands on these by by knocking some out and then understanding our weaponry better, and that's more dangerous for us in the long run? Is that their thinking, or are they just really worried about the environmental impact since they only get three miles a gallon?
1: Yeah, no. There's the, <laughs> look. I suppose you could. Be, there is a legitimate argument of. You know, is this really the best weapon for the Ukrainians to have? Uh, are they more complicated to use? Are they heavier? Are they more gas guzzlers? Coupled with the fact that the Ukrainians have captured a lot of Russian tanks, and apparently those style tanks are much more similar to the tanks that the Ukrainian army is already trained on how to use. But because Germany's like, we're not going to do this until you do. We've reached the point where Michael McCall, the ch- Republican chair of the House Foreign Relations Committee, that was on ABC's This Week yesterday, and he says, fine, let's send one Abrams tank to say to the Germans, OK, we've sent one. Now you guys can send some. My suspicion, Greg, is they would do that and then the Germans would just send one one of theirs. <laughs> Congratulations, Ukraine. You've got two more
0: tanks. The adults, you know, and I, you know, I, I can deal you know, with all this if everybody
1: would stop patting themselves on the back and how we're fully committed to helping Ukraine. Well, are you? If you are, then you send the tanks. Uh, you know, like you, there are a lot of folks who want who are basically of a. Uh, Democrats who say, yes, we should send these arms and Biden's doing a terrific job. There are a decent number of Republicans who are growing more skeptical and saying, no, we should not send Ukraine these weapons. And, you know, this is a terrible idea. And I'm in this strange position of saying, yes, we should send them the tanks. And no, Biden is doing a terrible job because he keeps insisting how committed he is. And then the follow through is always delayed and hemming and hawing. And, you know, we're doing the hokey pokey. We put one leg in, then we put <laughs> one leg out. You know, uh, we're always doing a hamlet routine. Should we send them or to not to send them? That is the question.
0: (laughs) Does Congress have a role here on deciding whether this ought to happen or since it's weaponry that's already paid for and uh, this isn't explicitly appropriating new dollars? They Ah, they sit this one out. Congress Congress. It would be nice. I'm sure Rand Paul is nodding vigorously somewhere. Jim, uh, that's quite a start for the week. We'll see what we have in store for us tomorrow.
1: See you tomorrow, Greg.
0: Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Uh, Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, uh, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.